Hello and welcome to the Healthy for Men podcast. I'm Gershom Portnoy and I'm the editor of Healthy for Men. In this episode, I'm joined by three guests for a frank discussion about the responsibility that men have when it comes to women. Unless you've been living on another planet for the last six months, you'll have noticed that the horrific murder of Sarah Everard has led to a huge outcry from women who have understandably had enough of the abuse they've suffered at the hands of men. This has also given rise to an unprecedented number of women bravely coming forward to talk about their experiences of abuse from men, from the everyday catcalling that goes on in the streets to the physical and sexual attacks that they have also experienced. This really feels like an enough is enough moment and a line has been drawn in the sand. So we wanted to understand what is it that men can now do to help make sure that abuse against women becomes a thing of the past. To help us work all that out, I'm joined by three excellent guests who know a thing or two about this subject. So a very warm welcome to Professor Russell Late, who is a social psychologist and the head of human sciences at the University of Greenwich and the co-author of Masculine Power and Gender Equality, Masculinities as Change Agents. Hello, Russell. Hello, Gershon. Thank you for, for inviting me to come along today. That's great. Thanks for being here. Uh, another warm welcome to Denise Ugor, who is the Deputy Director of the End Violence Against Women Coalition. Hello, Denise. Hi there. Thanks for having me on today. Great to have you, Denise. And finally, a warm welcome to Emma Kay, who is the founder of the Walk Safe app. Hello, Emma. Hi. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. Thank you for being here. So I thought maybe we could start this uh, discussion by each of you maybe briefly kind of introducing yourselves and letting listeners know why what you have to say is really worth listening to. So I thought, Emma, maybe we could start with you. You could tell us a bit about the WalkSafe app that you founded, uh, what led to that, and yeah, just a little bit about yourself. So I am 33. I live in Surrey and I've got a little girl called Ariana and I'm pregnant, so I've got another one on the way. Congratulations. Thank you. I co-founded an app, a personal safety app, that launched at the end of last year. Basically, it was a bit bittersweet as to why we become quite popular. Obviously, it was really upsetting to hear the tragic news of Sir Everard's passing. I think that that definitely struck a chord with um, all women out there. And we rose in popularity after that tragic incident. We were downloaded over half a million times. Yeah, it's been quite a busy period for us. So, yeah, continually kind of working on the app and trying to make safer spaces for women and, you know, just loving being on things like this, wonderful podcasts that we can have these discussions about. So yeah, it's a little bit about me. Yeah, that's great. I suppose for our many male listeners, it might be good to know what the Walk Safe app actually is and how it works, because they're probably in quite a privileged, fortunate position that they might not have to use an app like that. So sure. if you could maybe just explain just very briefly what, you know, what it is and how it works. So basically, we're a completely free app, free to download. We have no in-app purchases, uh, no subscription fees. So we're very accessible to everybody. Mm. We are basically, we've got two main functions on our app. So one is our WalkSafe map. So that's where you can have a look at your local area and you can see where all recent crime has taken place. Now, all of that data is completely taken from the police database. 
So that's completely 100% verified data that you will be seeing on your map that is refreshed every single month. So what we encourage our users to do is to before they head out and they go on a, um, a walk, say, with their loved one, or if they're going to go on a journey to meet a friend, we're trying to encourage people to look at their maps so they can see patterns of recent crime so they could avoid perhaps certain routes. We also have our community posting icons. So that's where, you know, you or I could be walking down the road and we spot that there's no street lights. So you would like to inform another passerby or another walk safer that maybe they might not want to take that route. So yeah, there are two main functions. We obviously have other safety features, but they are probably our most popular. Yeah, well, with all, with all those downloads, it's obviously taken off and it's obviously doing a great job and a great service to all its users. So yeah, con- well, congratulations on that anyway. It's obviously a you know, you. really great thing. So yeah, Denise, you're, as I said before, you're the Deputy Director of the End Violence Against Women Coalition. So yeah, maybe you could say a little bit more about the organisation and obviously anything about yourself. Yes, hi. Yeah, so our organisation, as you said, the End Violence Against Women Coalition, we are a coalition of more than 100 specialist women's support services, researchers, activists, lawyers, survivors and other NGOs all working towards a shared goal of ending violence against women and girls in all of its forms. So we were established in in around 2005 and we were established by those organisations that that are our members. And basically, you know, we're campaigning for every level of government to adopt better, more joined up approaches to ending and preventing violence against women and girls and sort of challenging the wider cultural attitudes that that tolerate and kind of uh, normalise this kind of abuse. So our overarching vision is a society where women and girls can live their lives free from violence and from the threat of violence as well, which is an important distinction, which I'm sure we'll we'll get into a bit later on. So apart from kind of that lobbying of government, we also do some work around influencing and shaping kind of wider public attitudes towards violence against women and girls so that there's kind of a better understanding of what are the causes the consequences and that we have a better mandate for tackling it so this means like doing work influencing public attitudes influencing community leaders media representations for example of violence against women and girls and our kind of fundamental thing is that we argue that violence against women and girls is in no way inevitable and I'm sure we all here can can agree on that, and that political will backed by public support really could aim to eradicate it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And just a little bit about the, the last few months in particular since Sarah Everard's death. Is, have, have you noticed a change in the, the amount of work you've had to do, for example, or, or media appearances or things like that? What's been happening? Yeah, it's it's been an incredibly busy period for ourselves as well. And yeah, I think... There's something that, you know, I'm sure we'll we'll discuss it later as well, but there's something about almost like a thirst for this moment to kind of be a bit of a watershed mm. and that coming from a whole variety of spaces, which I think is something that, yeah, it's, it's a kind of momentum that we really like to, to see continue and sort of become galvanised. And, yeah, as an organisation, we've been called upon a lot more as more and more media outlets want to talk about women violence against women and girls. As I've said, how... how public attitudes and public attention can actually go some way in terms of shifting our leaders narrative and their priorities so we're also in much more conversations with government as well around what can be done going forward 
So, yeah, and as I said, we're, we're an organisation made up of many members. The pandemic has been an absolutely massive shift in our members' work. You know, those organisations that are providing those life-saving services found themselves, you know, unexpectedly shut down overnight and mm. figures like 200% increases on, on phone calls into helplines, mm. significant increases in web traffic to pages around if you're concerned about a neighbour or a friend experiencing domestic abuse. So, yeah, for a whole variety of reasons, the last year, the last three months have been really unprecedented. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, we'll certainly be hearing more about uh, in due course, as you say. And yeah, just finally, in terms of the introductions, uh, Professor Russell Late. Uh, yeah, if you could um, maybe say a little bit about what's been going on for you recently and and, and, and overall. Uh, well, thanks, Kirsten. I, I imagine what's been going on recently for me is the same as everyone else, which is staying at home. But uh, well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's really nice to to be joined by Denise and Emma. And in fact, I was going to I was going to um, advertise Denise the End Violence Against Women campaign. So I need do that now you you're here so uh, yeah I, well I, I'm a I'm a social psychologist which is really interesting about how people interact with society and, and in groups with a particular focus on gender but a specialism in in men and masculinities and my work over the last 20 years or so has really taken place from what we describe as a masculinity studies perspective which is a, a pro-feminist perspective it's an understanding of of men as fundamentally contributing to gender relations and their the reproduction of of inequalities. Yep. So I think that's probably the best summary of my work that I'm going to do. No, that's great. It's obviously very, very interesting work, especially given, you know, sort of situations we find ourselves in at the moment. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose to start the discussion, I just thought we could talk a little bit about some actual kind of tangible things that that listeners can do. So really, I'd sort of like to throw this one open and say, in your opinion, what is it you think men could do more of and less of to help women? Yeah, I think it's a good place to start. <laughs> um, in terms of, you know, what men can do, I mean, obviously, we're, we're all here to discuss this. Men are, are very much part of the solution and can be a really, really important ally in this conversation. So fundamentally, what we want to do all together is kind of create a reality where women feel they can occupy spaces on the same terms as men. So, you know, that's kind of the, the kind of underlying thing. And if I move to kind of more tangible things, say, that, that, that might be, you know, of interest to your listeners as well, I think there are, there are a couple of really practical things that can take us on steps towards that kind of vision that I described. So one of the things is around, you know, calling out problematic behaviour, use of language, conversations when you see it and hear it. So you can do this with friends, family, colleagues, and, you know, not letting it slide and in inverted commas and therefore sort of participating in, in normalizing that kind of harmful or problematic behavior when you see it or when you hear it so you can let those people in and around your life know that you're not okay with that as a man and you know and they know that it will make women feel uncomfortable and therefore feed into women's inequality in, in, a, in a bigger way so I think yeah that kind of just naming an issue when you see it. Yeah. I think, I suppose a more 
proactive thing rather than responsive would be to kind of really just initiate and have more conversations with other men. So men educating themselves and one another, getting clear on the facts about who's perpetrating this violence, what kind of numbers there are, and being outraged together about it's the fact that it's going kind of almost unchecked. So yeah, men can come together, be outraged together, and as a result, affect real by participating in those campaigns have really a chance to affect real change in the spaces that they occupy whilst also adding to you know the the voices of women's organizations and I suppose apart from speaking openly it's also about kind of challenging yourself and your own behavior my my fundamental question in this this kind of segment is you know if men don't talk about the widespread crisis of men's violence against women how on earth do we expect it to get any better yeah Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's, it's it's interesting what you say. I suppose this this is the kind of shift that that we're looking for, which is, which seems to be. Look, it's great, obviously, if you're a man that doesn't indulge in any horribly abusive behaviour, whatever whatever it would be, you know, you know, horrible language or, or worse. But it's kind of not really enough to just be that man anymore. I think it's a much more, as you say, a proactive thing. I think that's what you're saying, which and I think that's a really important thing, which you know, I don't think there's enough times you can say or, or hear that that it's more. More than just oh you know I'd never do that and I think as well it's about active actively listening yeah so you know not just even being in a group and nodding along it's your act right actively engaging with these conversations and trying to empathize to understand and I had a video production company come over and we were discussing violence against women and you know we stopped rolling and us four girls were just kind of stood around having a conversation a very frank one and we just reeled off a subset just a subset of what had happened to us over our lives and you know if you want to call them the highlights the you know the worst of basically and you know someone I work with my CEO was sat next to me he's a male and I could just see in the corner of his eye he was just gobsmacked and he put down his work and he was like I actually can't believe what you're telling me this is shocking and he then stopped what he was doing he completely engaged and he was open to that conversation and you know dived straight in and wanted to hear more and I think that's part of it you know he was completely uh, my favorite quote it's not all men but it is all women and I think sometimes just having a man who's just willing to sit there open up be completely vulnerable except that these things go on and kind of just be willing to participate and actively get involved for me I think that's always like the first step yeah no absolutely um Russell, did you want to come in at this point? Well, I think everything that's been said has been really spot on and Denise summarised the key themes of, of, of interventions uh, really well. I think reflecting on her first point, which was how do you how do you intervene in cases in which either explicitly or implicitly women, the violence against women is being is being perpetrated? And, you know, there's a continuum. Yeah. Um, and I think quite often individuals, whether it's men or women, but men in particular in this case, struggle to call out those sorts of behaviours. And, and the reason is, is there's social sanction um, uh, for doing so. If you're in a group with your mates and you're having a, a lager and someone says something uh, uh, sexist with sort of uh, with, with a, a, aggressive undertones, to do so spoils the moment. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It spoils the moment. You, you, you viewed as somewhat different it's uncomfortable and so it's about really thinking about how can one do so in a way which you feel comfortable with and and they're really simple techniques that one can do one that i came across recently uh was uh just 
rephrasing what was said back as a question. So, for instance, if someone says, um, oh, look at that uh, hot bird, I'd like to nail her, that's, that's an aggressive, violent statement. It's obviously a performance because the individual is performing in, a, in an all-male group, telling their friends something about their masculinity. It's very difficult to challenge in a social situation. Mm. And one way would be to say, you would like to nail that bird? Because what it does is it calls out what the individual has said in their own terms and highlights its inappropriateness. I mean, that's just one example. Patisse is absolutely right. Calling it out, but calling it out in a way which is easy conversationally and puts the onus on the person who's made that comment or undertaken that behavior to correct themselves. And and so, yeah, absolutely. I think that's spot on. Uh, Participation in pro-feminist or allyship to women's organizations or initiatives. There are are a raft, you know, visiting the End Violence Against Women campaign. There there are other, many, many other initiatives, uh, such as White Ribbon UK. All of them come with their strengths and their weaknesses. But, you know, getting involved is an important step and remembering the purpose of it, which is really about supporting women rather than centering men in those discussions. And, and there's always a danger in those, in those initiatives that men become the focus, whereas men are central participants and important in gender relations, but they're not the focus of those campaigns. And then th- thirdly, Denise, you're, you're absolutely right, you know, having a look at yourself and we're all human beings. And, you know, I speak for myself, you know, there's sometimes you say things and do things that just weren't cool. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's, that doesn't label you as a bad person. It, it just, it, it's just something you need to constantly reflect on what you say. Language is doing. If you say things, you're doing things. You perpetuating ways of understanding and potentially creating direct distress or harm offense to others around you. And that will happen. It'll happen to all of us. Uh, but in case of men, to be quite self-reflexive on what they're saying and what they're doing and trying to rephrase things. So instead of saying, oh, I'd like to nail that bird, you say, oh, well, you know, she's really pretty. And that, that's quite a difference, but it's conveying the same thing. Yeah. It's more appropriate for Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting hear, hearing you talk, Russell, because, of course, without stating the obvious, me and you are the male participants in this discussion with two female participants, which is, you know, which is no accident. Obviously, I've invited guests onto, onto this podcast to, to talk about this. But it is really important to hear, I think, men speak in the, in the in the way that you just did to, to, to be able to understand to, to self-reflect I think that's a really really crucial one because all the other things are clearly really important and you know I would 100% endorse the you know the sort of some of the advice you just gave on how to handle those situations but for ourselves as well to be able to sort of self-reflect and say yeah you know what I 100% hold my hands up and I would have without a doubt have said some very questionable things over time and, and will probably continue to make mistakes, absolutely. But to have that awareness, I think, is what you're saying, and be able to self-reflect is so important. And it sort of brings me on, uh, I think it was hinted at earlier in the conversation, which is about male privilege. Now, I think there's probably some misunderstanding going on in terms of male privilege. It's, it's a phrase that's been obviously heard a lot more in the last few months. And a lot of men have been quite sort of dismissive, certainly in some of opinion pieces I've read and, and, you know, obviously on social media. I mean, goodness knows, there's all sorts of things being said there, uh, very, very questionable. But 
in terms of, I think it would just be useful at this point to really explain what male privilege means and why it's so important in terms of for us as men to reflect on that and understand that we do have this privilege and, and, and actually what that entails. So is, is it right to carry on and talk about that, Russell? Uh, yeah, I mean, when you, when you talk about that, I always think back to when I was a, an undergrad student at the University of Cape Town and it was just post-apartheid. And I remember I took a sociology course or module in race, class and gender. And I was the only white male in the class. And it was, it was a really distressing experience, but a very important one for me. Because, of course, I elected to undertake that module. I was interested in those issues of power and inequality, and in, sense, in the sense intersectional inequalities, race or ethnicity, uh, as, it, as it's more commonly called now, social class and gender. But then, of course, I had to listen to a lot of really difficult stuff, and Emma was reflecting on that. And what you've experienced on a personal level is, is defensiveness. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I'm here. I'm listening, and why, why am I being singled out? And I think we have to make a distinction between, you know, and that was a learning curve for me, is, is to accept, you know, to listen to, to other people's very visceral and painful experiences sometimes, for which you're not personally always accountable. There are instances in which you may say things or do things that, 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 that could have been better, but that as a, as a member of that category, you accrue benefit. You know, statistics don't lie. The fact that women earn less than men and consistently less and, and, and significantly so, that they experience a physical violence significantly more than men, interpersonal physical violence significantly more than men. These are facts. And as a man, um, these are things that one doesn't necessarily always hold personal responsibility for, but you do as a member of that category. You accrue benefit privilege, you've described it, through your membership to that categories, whether you want it or not. And as a result, there is an onus to reflect on that and, and to think the extent to which you can aid a more equitable or, or equal society through your actions and your contributions. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a really important point. Emma and Denise, obviously, feel free to come in here if, if there was something on on male privilege that, that, that you wanted to add. Obviously, from a from your female perspective, I think I, I, I suppose maybe this is an opportunity to zoom out a little bit and build on some of the the statistics that that Russell was saying. I think it, it's helpful to kind of set the scene right that, yeah. of course, as a society, like we've made progress in terms of gender equality let's let's not deny that but you know as all of us here can can attest to especially Emma and myself in particular as women and girls we still face inequality in in many aspects of our lives and one of the one of these aspects is that you know as was as Russell mentioned we're much more likely to experience particular forms of violence so at that point I just want to zoom out and and for your listeners that the may or may, or may not be aware and I want to say this a bit slowly because sometimes stats can be reeled off and can kind of lose the, the meaning behind them. But if I just say this, two women are killed every single week in England and Wales by a current or former partner. And not a week goes by that I don't on a Sunday reflect on that fact and look back and think two women died this week at the hands of a current and former partner in in England and Wales. And that, that that's that's unacceptable. One in every three women will experience domestic abuse in her lifetime. If we look around us, we can all name at least three women in our lives that we know. One, one of those three will experience domestic abuse in her lifetime. 
that's unacceptable. The over half a million women, half a million women are raped or sexually assaulted every single year. It's absolutely unacceptable. And there was a survey recently from UN Women UK that found that women aged 18 to 24, of them, of their thousands of survey respondents, 97% of them, 97%, almost all of them, said they'd been sexually harassed. It's unacceptable. So building, I suppose, zooming back in a little bit, for me, male privilege is hearing all of this, understanding it, even being appalled by it, but then it stops there. As women, we can't distance ourselves from this reality, this men's violence against women. We, can't, we, we don't have that privilege to distance ourselves from it and look at it as a statistic and think, oh, gosh, OK, and then move on. As a result, you know, and Emma knows this really well, we feel like we need adaptations to our behaviours, to try and minimise not only the potential of being a victim, but being blamed for that victimisation. So I think for me, that kind of wraps up in a picture like what, what male privilege means to me. And it really nicely segments onto what um, my next point is. So thank you very much. Exactly what you just said there, that I think the onus is always on us to keep ourselves safe. And that's quite a pressure. That's quite a burden to always take. I mean, I'm now, like I said, for pregnant. So now I'm not only responsible for myself, I'm responsible for this baby that I'm carrying. And in lockdown, my husband would finish work at 8pm, it would be pitch blackout and he'd go for a walk. And I'd look at him and think, I wouldn't do that. (laughs) You know, um, I don't have those luxuries in life. I don't have that ability to not worry about my personal safety all the time and be very aware that it's my responsibility and keep myself safe for not only for myself, but for my family. Even things like, even in my job, certain conversations I have with people, I've been dismissed because I'm female, I'm pregnant, perhaps she's hormonal. Um, (laughs) She's being sensitive today. There's just kind of doesn't just stop at safety that sort of you know these constant conversations these things that you know even sexuality what if a male gets to be promiscuous he gets to have these sorts of laddish banter sort of you he can get away with way more than a woman could a woman would be slut shamed she'd be it's just not it's not equal and I know it's as I always say I know it's not all men but I think One thing I've definitely realised recently is, I know it's not all men, but I think that there's definitely for a lot of men not that reflection of, like you were saying earlier, perhaps something they said could have offended someone. It could have come across wrong. They weren't trying to offend anyone, but that something they said has definite tones of male privilege and they could not for one second understand nor empathise with me, with my position or what I'm trying to do or where my point is. And I think I've definitely encountered that more so as a working mum um, going forward. And these men aren't, you know, just the ones that are the horrible stats about. These are just great guys. They just don't, there's just sometimes that lack of awareness that happens. And as we were saying, it, it it's very hard to sit back and think, did I say the right thing? Perhaps could I have approached that differently? And to be reflective, because you're right, our first emotions tend to be quite defensive. So it does go back to what we can do and it is about the education and like you said it is continuously about reflecting 
because yeah it's hard for us women and having that awareness and people even just engaging and listening I think is just so vital. Thanks for for all your points just now. Really, really useful as well to hear that, especially as a man, and especially that it's not all men. Because, of course, it's not all men is something that has been heard and hashtagged and possibly too much in, in the last few months especially. And while I suppose we could say you could perhaps understand where the motivation is coming from behind it's not all men. As you say, it's a defensive reaction, isn't it? It's like, well, you, whoa, I've never done anything like that. I'm not that person. But as we said at the beginning, it's not enough anymore to be that the person that doesn't, that's never done that and would never say that. It's so much more than that. So, yeah, I, I, and I kind of did want to hear from all of you about it's not all men to sort of maybe dive a little bit deeper into that, to understand where that comes from and, and what that is all about. I mean, is, is it purely a defensive reaction or, or is there something more going on? I think one thing that always strikes me is that obviously identities are really important to people, so how they see themselves and how they want to be seen. Yeah. And if you have an identity as a, as a man and, and with certain meanings ascribed to that in terms of masculinity, those are very personal to you. And when, when someone challenges those as problematic, you are going to be defensive. And it's very, all very well an academic like me coming on the show and saying, well, masculinity is not really a thing. If you go across cultures and you go across time, it's changed quite radically. And if you look across, you know, if you look across cultures today, masculinity is something different because people experience things as if they're real and they're meaningful. And they, of course, are on a, on a personal level. So I can see why uh, it is problematic. And, and indeed, a lot of interventions or campaigns try and cushion the message to men. And, and you see it in lots of terms like toxic masculinity, which is very popular today. I, I have on an academic level a problem with that because I think that a lot of masculinity-related norms, such as being hyper-competitive, uh, uh, the drive towards success and heterosexual success, these are all things that underpin ultimately negative effect on other individuals including men, but primarily women. And so I, I understand the pragmatism in that because you soften the blow for people, they're more receptive to the messaging. But the truth is, ultimately, men need to be self-reflexive on their behavior. And it doesn't, again, doesn't make them bad. <laughs> We're all human, we do mm -hmm. things. But it's about taking a critical look at themselves. And, and I would just reflect on what, uh, what Emma was saying. I mean, it was really great, Emma, you used that, you know, the example of walking late at night and, and statistics, Denise, of course, you know, uh, people don't feel them because they don't experience them. You know, you, we can say that uh, hundreds of thousands of people have died in the UK from COVID, but we don't feel it because we don't see it. Uh, and it sort of doesn't run true. And the same things with a lot of statistics, human-related statistics. So experience is really important. And men often don't experience things viscerally. And two examples would be, Emma in particular, I had a colleague and we had a graveyard next to our campus. Sounds a bit dodgy, but there you are. And I never thought twice about walking through that graveyard at night. And I remember saying to her, oh, come and join us for a drink. She was up, I was calling on the, on the mobile and she said, no, I can't, I don't want to walk through the graveyard. And of course, you don't see it and feel it until that happens. Or walking with ex-partners, uh, a woman in, in the street and them getting wolf whistled. It doesn't happen to me. It was only when I saw it happening to them that it would have offensive uh, and threatening 
get experienced. And I do think that these kind of conversations where people share those experiences openly are important. People respond to those they love and who they're close to. They don't respond to statistics. So to have those conversations and make it real is really important. Sorry, to jump in, I completely agree with you, Russell, because I think the one thing that I've noticed is, and this goes back to perhaps your next question, Gershon, which is being a parent. Now, Mm. for some men, not all men, it's not until perhaps you become a father and maybe a father of a daughter, uh, you've got a daughter, that these sorts of issues then might actually make you think twice or might make you think, how would I feel if I knew that happened to my daughter? And I think these abstract sort of thoughts, these abstract sort of statistics, like we were all saying, and Denise says, you know, they can feel very almost so far out there and and nothing to do with them. It can feel all of a sudden it closes in on you and your life and they become tangible and they become real and it becomes a real fear that all of a sudden you can empathise with. And that really brings it home. So I think for some people, it's not until your personal circumstances change in life that or you grow as a person or you maybe you move or something happens that I think perhaps your perspective can shift. So I definitely think becoming a parent can sometimes be one of the biggest ways in which that happens. Yeah, thanks. I'm pleased you brought that up because, as you said, I was going to talk about that as well. And obviously, as a father myself, and I know Russell is as well, and I'm sure that we have a lot of listeners who who are parents as well. It felt felt to me, certainly, in the last few months, you know, I, I have sons and a daughter, so I'm kind of thinking about both sides of the equation, if you like. It feels that suddenly, in a way that it's never felt before, that it's really incumbent upon me as a father to be having conversations with my children that I probably never thought that I would have if I'm honest certainly not while they were children I think I I think that's the important thing to say I think I probably would have had those conversations as they became teenagers adults and so on but now I think actually and I'd love to hear your views on this I think actually as children it's probably really important now to start having those conversations. I agree. I mean, I used to work, I've done my VA ons in early years in education when I was younger. So I've worked with babies from Mm. four months all the way to older. And I worked in a nursery and I remember this one incident again talking about those masculine stereotypes and societal pressures that we put on men and this need for them to appear like a man and I was giving a handover to one of the dads about the child's day and the child had walked over he was a little boy probably about three or four and he was holding a doll and he was just playing with it beautifully and the dad stormed over snatched the doll out of his hands and said boys don't play with that they they play with trucks and then snatched it off and gave him the truck and I said oh it's okay I tried to explain that it's good for his personal social and emotional needs that you know oh one day he might just be a really good dad it's just only a positive it's lovely trying to explain the development side and he just shut me down I don't want to hear that that's not what boys do and I think you're right. I think it starts from as young as they're showing an interest. If children are sponges, they want to learn, they want to soak it up, they model what you do. I think that the earlier you have these sorts of conversations, the better, personally. There's also plenty of evidence around that actually where the point at which parents think that their kids are interested does not match with 
when the kids are actually already accessing that information, having those conversations with their peers, or even being around those conversations. So I think that's really telling. So yeah, I think, as you both said, I think having conversations, having those conversations, obviously in an age appropriate way, with both boys and girls is super, super vital. And I think I would just back it up as well, just with, you know, we did some research a couple of years ago around public attitudes to what the public's view of is in terms of how to identify rape and what was really really interesting was that for example a third of people in Britain in response to our survey said that they didn't think it was rape if a woman was pressured into sex but there was no physical violence so this is a manifestation of those conversations that we don't have when those are younger. It leads to kind of confusions and stereotypes and it leaves space for stereotypes and myths to kind of take hold and become super common. And then that means that, you know, as a the part of the, the domino effect of that is that women won't necessarily be given the support they need from their family and friends. The rape they experience isn't understood as harmful or even as rape, for example, in this instance. For example, we found that 97% of people we asked believed it's definitely rape and therefore illegal if a stranger forces themselves on a woman in a park at night. But that number dropped to the 80% of people who are sure that it's rape if a man has sex with a woman who is drunk or asleep. So this means that around one in 10 aren't sure or think it usually or definitely isn't rape in that case. And I think that that that's just kind of goes to show that if we yeah if we don't have these conversations early on and give young people the information they need about what is sexual consent what are harmful gender stereotypes and schools have an important role to play here as well as as well as parents and carers and and that's something that we have been campaigning actively on for a really long time about the responsibilities of of schools they need to be given that information in schools particularly and actually the women's sector women's organizations have got loads of really useful resources that can help both parents carers and schools to have those conversations so things like offering age-appropriate language and framing themes for having conversations about things like you know understanding consent for example managing your feelings and accepting responsibility for your own feelings and behaviors challenging kind of assumptions and beliefs uh, about man and woman understanding red flags and all of this can vary depending on what kind of age group you're talking to and I would just flag two really useful resources in this area for speaking to children and young people one of them is the women's aids respect toolkit and the other is one of both our members another one is the women and girls network has a guide for parents and carers on language noticing the signs and how to support uh, young women in and around you Thanks for that, Denise. That's great because we are definitely in, in the realm of education now and clearly education is, is so important in this area. So those resources sound really, really useful. And I was just wondering if, if Russell or Emma, perhaps you were aware of other resources where not only in terms of educating children, which, which is clearly important, but perhaps adults as well, uh, resources that adults might find interesting to kind of further their understanding and, and, and really get to grips with these issues a bit more. So, I mean, I, I do really do think the Environment Women's website is really great. You know, it's a resource that, that has a lot of campaigns in it and it's a good starting point uh, to, to sort of orient yourself current issues in the UK. Are a huge number 
of initiatives, pro-feminist or ally initiatives for men. The question always for me in these things is how do you enact durable change? How do you step beyond the initiative itself and make a broader-based societal change? So, of course, men need to involve themselves, inform themselves. Uh, families need to inform themselves. So, I mean, you're talking about children's uh, gender practices being instantiated in an early age. Well, of course, mothers and fathers have a, have a joint role in that respect. I've often seen mothers reinforce as viciously as fathers gender role uh, prescriptions. And, and so there are, they, they are or practices, normative practices. So there's personal responsibility, Gershon. It starts there. But then, of course, there are the structural issues that both Denise and Emma have spoken to, which are incredibly difficult to challenge. Schools, as a parent myself, I'm sure Emma will agree, schools do a really good job. <laughs> of perpetuating inequalities because some of their core assumptions, pedagogical assumptions, despite decades worth of research, haven't changed. And the sort of statements, I remember in one school, I contacted administrators saying, I seem to have been list, uh, moved off the list uh, for parent list information. She said, oh, yes, we just don't want to trouble the fathers with the nitty gritty. And those sorts of statements are commonplace. They're not once off. They occur all the time. Or, well, you know what boys are like, or you know what girls are like. And those are taken as fact. And so I think those very foundational institutional axes in which gender inequalities are being reproduced, such as education systems, far more uh, emphasis needs to go in, as Denise has said, in, in addressing those as well as parenting. It's a great point, Russell. And it just reminded me of my children's school actually where they have a kind of class rep system which you may or may not be familiar with where parents are nominated as kind of class reps to help liaise between teachers and other parents you know communicate key messages and and so forth and for years they were always looking for other volunteers to do class reps and it was always the same mothers coming forward time and again and at some point I kind of wondered why fathers weren't class reps it wasn't like the mothers that were class reps weren't working you know also also working and doing exactly the same things as the fathers were and I'm, I'm very proud to say that that I was not the first but I was one of the first uh, male class reps so hopefully like you know trying to uh, to, to affect change through, through action there even in a very very tiny way but the, the example you gave change and being a good role model that's what children need to see that then another father figure is stepping up and saying actually where are the dads and that's amazing for the kids to even you know witness I think that you did that I hope so links back to to what we were talking about earlier actually around self-reflection over defensiveness and I think Mm. as a parent you can practice that in terms of you know how you engage with your children on on difficult questions as has been said before like we're going to People make mistakes along the way, but actually what's important is then reflecting on that and thinking, okay, well, how can I, how can I, how can I do better? How can I change my approach to this that will affect a different outcome this time? And I think that's a brilliant model to be setting for children that actually it's okay. The most important thing is that you're honest and that you talk about it and that you bring it to a parent or a carer or whoever, and that it's only by talking about these things that, that we can hope to, to kind of affect any kind of change. And it's, yeah, I think it, it nicely kind of brings us back to that initial thing about, not about defensiveness, mm. it's, it's really about thinking about how we can do things differently. Sometimes as parents, Denise, we, we ask ourselves, well, what, how do we need to raise our children or, or as a society as a whole? What, what values do we hold people to account for? And I, I find it very helpful sometimes to reorient it away from 
gender meanings. You know, that's what men do and that's what women do. And ask yourself a simple question. What values and behaviors are human enhancing? What leads to happy, functional, kind people? And that's what we should be asking of all our children, regardless of whether they're boys or girls. Absolutely. And, and reorienting to a different set of standards, not gender standards, but just common human values that make for happier and more equal society. And I think, Gershon, that's something we can do. Mm. You know, it's an easy thing to ask yourself. If I'm asking this of my child, is it good for everyone? Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree because, of course, then in turn, what you're raising is an emotionally healthy child with good boundaries, who've got an awareness of everything and will be open to then challenge things should they see it. And if they're emotionally strong enough and feel comfortable enough within themselves to even have those conversations early on, I think it then becomes quite natural to them so if they see something they say it it wouldn't then feel such a big scary barrier to perhaps call someone out because they've been brought up in a way where they feel safe in sharing their opinions and the one thing I didn't touch on and the one thing that I always think is very vital to say and I think especially in we were discussing how men can sometimes feel defensive and it isn't all men and you know those sorts of feelings around it that the one thing I've definitely noticed and probably same with you Denise that sometimes it's not always safe to say the right thing and even in an ideal world I'd love nothing more than for people to step up and have these conversations and perhaps be part of change I'm also very aware that safe space aren't always for people at home even with their family they might not even be with their friends hence why we've set up a Facebook group a community group purely with women so they can have these frank conversations you know they could have it anonymously you know not everyone wants to share these things or have these conversations with people they know and they can also sometimes be I wouldn't say dangerous but not safe for them to do so so I think it's just about creating those safer communities where people feel like they can share without fear of it coming back on them in a negative way so I always think that's quite important and that could be another barrier as to you know why a lot of people don't feel the need they can speak up because it might not be safe to do so. No I, I think that's crucial absolutely thanks for that Emma. Look, it's it's obviously been an absolutely fascinating discussion and there's so much more that we could say. But of course, this is a podcast and, and, and we can't really go on for hours and hours and hours. But I think there's a lot of really good takeaways, things you know that listeners can really kind of think about. But just before we do wrap up, I just wondered if you could maybe just say a little bit just to kind of finish off about what progress in this particular area looks like for you what when do you think or what would need to happen for you to think right we are really getting somewhere really making progress or or even the fact that we're having this conversation is that already a bit of progress i'm going to steal emma and and Denise's first observation that was really apt and spot on the problem is when we ask the victims to find the solutions uh you know they have to carry an app around with them or they have to take self-assertiveness training I think progress would have been made where we're not asking people to adjust to a a discriminatory environment when women aren't required to alter their behaviours for fear of negative consequences. Denise? Building on that, that kind of act of taking attention away from those that perpetrate the violence and then therefore normalise those attitudes and behaviours, I think 
there's a significant piece there and something that we are calling on and will have done and will continue to do is something along the lines of a public awareness campaign that tries to change those kind of societal attitudes that targets men's behavior we really think that's necessary so if you take for example something like a public health approach as we have done with targeting smoking or obesity we actually might get somewhere because you know if we look back at those campaigns there's a real change in the shift in, in the way that we understand and interact with those issues so for the next generation it, it you know it starts in schools with education about healthy relationships consent all of that tackling harmful gender stereotypes and a non-tolerance approach to harassment so yeah I mean I think I suppose all of that boils down to let, let's tackle misogyny at its core we need to counter the messaging that means that women need to live with a certain degree of fear or an expectation of assault and why we might feel like we need to download Emma's app for example yeah I think ultimately you know, we won't see change unless those attitudes and behaviours that kind of excuse and normalise are challenged. And we're all part of that. And I, and I really hope to see more and more conversations like these taking place. So I'm really grateful to have participated in this one. Yeah, I agree with everything that Russell and Denise have said. I think ultimately what would be lovely is women and men working together, there being equal rights and people just actively listening hearing each other and working together to create these safer communities because I think ultimately it's going to take a lot of voices a lot of campaigns a lot of people it's not going to be an overnight fix so I think the more we can can just continue on this trajectory the better that's great well look I'd like to say a huge thank you to Professor Russell Late to Denise Ugor uh, and to Emma Kay for joining us on this episode providing such valuable insight into such an important subject matter if you want to read more on the subject in addition to the resources that our guests have obviously recommended please do check out the new issue of Healthy Magazine which is available from June the 19th from all Holland and Barrett stores and online at hollandandbarrett.com and we will be back with another episode of the Healthy for Men podcast very soon Uh, until then it's goodbye Find something true that